Hi, and welcome to the Lancet Global Health Podcasts. My name is Nina Putnis, and today we are talking about sexual and reproductive health and rights. This is the topic of two articles in this month's issue, which was published last week on the 18th of March, 2020. And so it's already available for free online at www.thelancet.com forward slash journals forward slash L-A-N-G-L-O. Sexual and reproductive health and rights are an incredibly important element not only of health and health care, but also of women's rights, gender equality, demography, economic development, and in fact can be seen to underpin all of the other sustainable development goals. In other words, it's essential to the sustainable development of our world. 2020 is an important year for global sexual and reproductive health and rights. At the back end of last year, we saw 25 years since the first International Conference on Population Development, or the ICDP, an important point in the history for advocacy and global policy for universal education, reduction in maternal, infant and child mortality, and access to reproductive and sexual health services, including family planning. This year is also 25 years since the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, an important historical step in advancing women's rights globally. Finally, FP2020, a global partnership investing in rights-based family planning, in its current iteration, reaches its conclusion this year. In this month, the Lancet Global Health issue, we have two papers on this topic. One, a comment by Dorothy Shaw discussing the patchy progress on ICPD, and she queries, are we asking the right questions? And the second, an original research paper by Slaymaker et al., which uses a retrospective analysis of nationally representative surveys to give us a contextual perspective on progress towards the ICPD agenda. This important paper looks at our progress in the 25 years since ICDP and how contraceptive demand and supply has changed since then. It is with Dr. Emma Slaymaker, lead author of this paper, that I will be discussing this topic today. Dr. Emma Slaymaker is an epidemiologist based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She works mainly with observational data on sexual health. Much of her work concerns the epidemiology and demographic impact of HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. But she also has a strong interest in worldwide patterns and determinants of sexual behavior and risks. Emma, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. No problem. So... This is a huge study of 74 countries looking at this important topic, including in many of these countries where information can be quite difficult to obtain on this. Could you perhaps open up the conversation by giving us some background on this and explaining why these elements of sexual reproductive health and rights in these countries are so important? Sure. Well, personally, I came into this area of work via the Global Burden of Disease Study they rightly identified sexual ill health defined then as unsafe sex as an important determinant of the global burden of disease. And this was in 2001 before the move towards a more holistic definition of sexual health, um, which has formally been produced by the WHA working group for operationalizing sexual health. This is actually the third time I've compiled all the global survey data on sexual health. And this time we wanted to describe not only just describe behaviour now, but also the trends in those behaviours. 
And in addition, we wanted to explore the extent to which behaviours cluster together at the national level and to include social structural determinants in that analysis. Although sexual and reproductive health underpins many other aspects of health and well-being, comparable data are really quite scarce. The focus on family planning following the ICPD declaration cemented the continued importance of collecting national family planning data and the need for data to monitor the extent and the response to the HIV epidemic has propelled data collection in many countries, particularly those in sub-Saharan Africa, and especially on those behaviours which are linked to HIV risk. And we know from studies such as NATSAL done in um, England, Wales and Scotland, that other aspects of sexual health, which are not linked directly to disease outcomes, are also strongly connected with other aspects of health. And the national surveys done from the high income countries tend to have a broader scope and include many of those wider aspects, but they're harder to compare with others. And so we set out to compile the most comprehensive set of data we could find. And we discovered a very wide range of measures for which there were data from, from each country, but a much smaller set of countries for which there were good quality comparable trend data. And so the measures we focused on in the paper were part of that subset, but allowed us to look closely at the areas highlighted by the ICPD conference and to take the broader perspective rather than just a narrow focus on family planning use, but one which picks up on the social and behavioural changes which have occurred in the 25 years since ICPD. And so in this data that you mentioned, you look back at almost 25 years of, of data. So you were able to look at surveys between 1995 and 2018 that obviously may be able to give us a good idea of progress over the time in those factors that you looked at. So those factors were relative timings of the first time having sex, first union and first birth, and the change in prevalence of sexual activity intention to get pregnant and the use of modern contraceptives. Could you perhaps explain how you could measure and compare this over time and why this gives us such important information? So all of our data come from surveys and we aim for general population nationally representative surveys. The vast majority were conducted as face-to-face -face interviews. Um, in some of the high-income countries we got data from um, assist computer assisted interviews and as you say in most of the countries we have data from more than one survey typically they're conducted about five-year intervals and we're very fortunate in that much of the data comes from the demographic and health surveys and they've been collecting relevant information since the late 80s but the information that we've used started to be collected mainly in the late 90s and the early 2000s and that enabled us to have a core set of measures that were asked about in exactly the same way at different points in time for a large number of surveys. And then for the uh, surveys that weren't part of the demographic and health surveys, we tried to match what had been collected in those to what was in the DHS. So we harmonised it in that way. And we wanted to look at the ages of first sex, union and first birth and the proportion who are sexually active because we knew there'd been a lot of change in these over time and that they affect the demand for and the use of contraception. And they do this in two ways, changes in the levels of sexual activity, both in age at first sex and the proportion who are sexually active, obviously alters the size of the population that potentially needs contraception, and that's relevant for planning service provision. But the changes are also correlated with other changes in wider society, such as the expansion of female education. And those will 
also have a direct effect on the demand for and the ability to access and use contraception. So turning now to, to what you've found in these surveys, your paper contains a lot of findings, obviously, from a lot of countries, and these vary a lot by country as well. Could you briefly try to summarise these first and describe the most important conclusions that you can make from all this? You know, do, do any countries stand out? So uh, at the national level, when we started by looking at the ages at which women experience these three life events, first sex, first union and first birth, and we found there a fairly consistent picture that women born in the 80s and the 90s tend to be older at their first union and their first birth compared to women born earlier in the 1960s and 70s. But there are a few countries where this was not seen, but there's not a consistent pattern to which countries um, didn't show that effect. Age of first sex has also changed considerably in many countries, but there's much less consistency in the direction of that change, with about equal numbers of countries reporting an increase in the age of first sex as reported a decrease in the age of first sex. Um, and again, it's not a, an obvious trend towards a more common age of first sex. Or, um, there's still quite a substantial variation in that age. And the changes in the ages at events, the key, key life events that we looked at, affect the levels of sexual activity, which we defined in this paper as sex in the last year. And that's also affected by the number of women in partnerships and the characteristics of those partnerships, um, particularly the length of the partnership and whether the partners cohabit, which both have a strong influence on coital frequency. We didn't have good enough comparable data to directly look at changes in women's partnerships, which I think is a great shame as it would be, I'm sure, very revealing. Um, we know that changes in women's position in society are likely to have changed partnership behaviours over time. But we found widespread changes in the level of sexual activity with a change in 43 out of 74 countries where we could look at that trend. And there was an increase in the proportion of women who were sexually active in 30 of those. We also saw an increase in the demand for modern method use among those who were sexually active. And we saw increases in modern method use amongst those who were sexually active and did not want to conceive. But that said, there were also declines in demand for contraception. We saw that in nine countries and decreases in modern method use in six countries. Um, and again, there's not a, a clear pattern to which countries um, had falling demand or falling modern method use, and it wasn't the same ones. Um, there was also some evidence of increases in modern method use, even quite substantial ones, not being sufficient to meet the increased demand for contraception. And then we wanted to look at the correlation at the national level between levels of gender development and female education and the demand for and the use of modern methods and we found that there was a very strong correlation there countries with greater gender equality and those with a longer time spent in education for girls had higher demand for and use of contraception and then lastly we carried out a principal components analysis to see the extent to which at a national level a set of behavioral and social structural characteristics vary together and having found some components which summarise the constellation of these factors, the extent, we looked at the extent to which these predicted contraceptive use, we found that one component in particular was strongly correlated with the use of a modern method. And this shows that at a national level, you can predict contraceptive use from other aspects of sexual behaviour and from social structural determinants 
which really shows that it's it's a key part of a much bigger set of behaviours. It's not just something that's happening in isolation. Absolutely. And thank you for summarising what is obviously a very complex picture across these countries. I wondered, what about abortion? So in the study, you note that data on this and on post-abortion care is scarce and generally poor, so you were not able to do a global comparison. Why does this matter when talking about sexual reproductive health and rights? And how should or, or could we advocate for a change in data collection on this? Abortion remains stigmatised and, and decriminalised in many of the countries we included in our study. And that, of course, means that data can't be collected in the national surveys that we've used. Where abortion is illegal, that means safe abortions aren't available. But we know that doesn't mean that other unsafe abortions aren't happening. We know that abortions form an important part of women's sexual and reproductive history. Um, and even where there is good access to safe abortions, it's important to monitor the prevalence of recourse to abortion in order to understand the burden and the factors which lead to women seeking one. I think the best information for advocacy is probably the burden of ill health and mortality as a consequence of unsafe abortions. But these aren't data that are easy to collect in surveys such as we've used here. Yeah, understood. So you've described well why it matters looking behind us and all of these different factors around sexual and reproductive health. But why? what does this mean going forward? Why is this study important in this important year with, for example, the new iteration of FP 2020 and with 25 years of experience now in this sector? Is this a turning point for sexual reproductive health and rights? Do we want it to be? What do we need to do differently, if anything? I think our study shows how important it is to consider sexual and reproductive health and rights as a whole and not try to isolate component parts, either for interventions or for monitoring. The wider social context shapes individual behaviour and the behaviours within partnerships. And I suspect very little of a person's behaviour is determined in complete isolation. And so a narrow focus on changing or measuring one specific aspect of behaviour without taking into account the bigger picture is not necessarily very helpful. Um, as an example, it's quite common in surveys focused on HIV to ask a lot of questions about condom use, but it's often forgotten to ask about desire for a child. And although condoms aren't seen as primarily a method of contraception, they're not used by people who want to conceive. And without knowing whether someone wants to avoid conception, it's very difficult to understand their condom use or non-use. And I think in order to effectively improve sexual and reproductive health and rights across the spectrum, we need to understand the wider context to consider the specific behaviours as part of a set and to recognise that the barriers and enablers may well be societal as well as characteristics of the individual or of the partnership. And I think that brings us really nicely to what is now unfortunately our final question um, around context and that's the in the current climate it's obviously really difficult for me not to mention it at all in a time of a pandemic on top of existing issues such as climate change and ongoing issues such as poverty weak health systems and political instability in many of the countries that you studied why should sexual reproductive health and rights still take a priority seat well first i think it's important to know that improvements in poverty and health systems are likely to improve sexual reproductive health and rights so they're not unconnected but taking, for example, two outcomes of 
poor sexual and reproductive health, um, HIV and unsafe abortions. I think the numbers speak for themselves. There were an estimated two quarters of a million AIDS-related deaths in 2018, 24 and a half million people living with HIV worldwide. And it's been estimated that each year there are around 100 million unintended pregnancies. And if around half of these end in abortion, and many of these in countries where abortion is not safe, the burden of maternal deaths attributable to abortion is double that of the current global total deaths due to COVID-19. And um, whilst it, that's you know, inescapable, that's going to rise, um, you know, these, this burden due to poor sexual and reproductive health has been in existence for many years. And for HIV and for unsafe abortion, we know how to prevent these deaths and good sexual and reproductive health and rights is central to that. I absolutely agree. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. Thank really. you.